Today's text is from 1 John chapter 5, verse 6 through 12. It is found on page 1023 of the Pew Bible, if you want to follow along, or on the screen. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's begin with a quick word of prayer again. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come now and to fill our hearts, to give us minds that are quick to understand and hearts that are quick to receive by faith what it is you want to give to us. Please may we see our Lord and may we love him more and pray this in his holy and beautiful name. Amen. Well, I have uh, a statement to say that I think you can probably agree with, but um, online consumer reviews are a gift to humanity. Um, as long as I've been an adult, as long as I've been actually buying appliances and stuff like that, there's always been online reviews, and I honestly can't fathom how you bought things before online reviews. Like, just go talk to your neighbor, like, what kind of coffee machine do you have? Uh, but now, you know, I can find out what 10,000 people think about a certain coffee maker that I want to buy, and I can get a good idea. Now, with online testimonials, though, there is, we got to take some of them with a grain of salt. It's possible to game the system. People actually can create, like, bots that, that give hundreds of fake five-star reviews. Uh, I remember one time looking at a product that was supposedly, you know, marketed for Americans. When you look at all the reviews, they're all written in, like, really broken English, and you're like, mm, I don't know if these are all legitimate reviews. Um, and then, of course, there's always, you know, reviews that make no sense. The people just like to give one-star reviews. So there's, you know, a review like, got this coffee maker, worked great for six months, and then I dropped it in the pool and it stopped working. And there was no warning label that if you dropped it in the pool, it wouldn't work. So one-star review, and you're like, you know, I just think that's not a fair, fair review. So you don't look at one review, you look at the broad spectrum from the average it out, and you try to make your decision. But there are testimonies that will take very seriously from just one person. So for instance, if the doctor tells you that you're pregnant, take it very seriously. Hopefully, joyfully seriously, not always. Um, on a much darker note, if the doctor tells you you have cancer, you also take that very seriously. When it comes to testimony, what people will tell us, the more serious the matter is, what they're telling us, and the more trustworthy the source is, the more seriously we'll take that testimony. So obviously cancer is a very serious thing, and a doctor is a very trustworthy person, so we, we take that very seriously. I'm saying all this for a reason, so hang with me. Uh, John is nearing the end of this letter. This is our second to last week. Next week we'll be finishing up First John. And John is trying to kind of encapsulate again, remind again, 
why it's so important for the Ephesians, who this letter is written to, and for us as Christians, why it's so important for us to let what we have heard from the beginning abide in us. Because at the end of the day, it's God's testimony that we're dealing with. What the Apostle John gave to uh, this church was what he had received from Jesus, which was the very testimony of God concerning not just physical life and death, but eternal life and death. And so we need to take this testimony very seriously and listen to it. Our outline this morning of where we'll be going, first point, what is testified? Second point, they who testify. And the third point, the life they testified to. So first point, what is testified? Go ahead and and, uh, read along as I read the first half of verse six again. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. John has already summarized, if you remember, throughout this letter, he's going over three tests of authentic faith. How do we know what real faith looks like? He summarized them previously, how they're, you know, not just arbitrary tests, but they flow in and out of one another. Uh, they, you have to take them as a whole packaged deal, but all three of them are primary obedience, faith, and love. In one sense, faith is even more primary. And so he bookends them with faith. He who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and then finishes it. Who is the one who overcomes? The one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Faith is primary. Faith is what overcomes the world. And so here he takes a few verses and he looks at what is the object of our faith? Who is the one that we have faith in? What do we testify to about him? is what is testified. And he describes it beautifully in verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood. I'm going to break that down into two sections as we look at what is being testified about Jesus. First is this is he who came, and the second what is testified will be by water and blood. So this is he who came. This is typically what theologians refer to as the incarnation. It's basic, necessary to the testimony we have about Jesus. It's the great and beautiful news that the apostles testified to that God really came to us. That in Jesus Christ, God was Emmanuel. Emmanuel is a Hebrew word that literally means God is with us. And when Jesus came, God wasn't seemingly with us. He wasn't coming close to us. He came and lived with us. You know, uh, God's appearing to people and speaking to people is not unique to Christianity. Every culture has ever existed every religion that has ever existed, every time period that's ever existed, people believe that the gods or the divinities or the divine spoke to them. But what is unique is that God didn't simply appear as a phantom to the apostles. He didn't come as a vision. He didn't come as a prayer in the night. But he took on a human body, a full human body that bled, sweated, broke like any human body, that smelled like any human body. Jesus didn't take on like a, a charmed human body. He, was, he lived a human experience like you and I do. This is what John has been at pains to emphasize, that Jesus Christ is the one who came by the flesh. In other words, he came and he was physically present to us. This is he who came. If the pandemic has taught us anything, it's that physical presence is irreplaceable. If you remember, there's a season where we couldn't meet, and, and praise God that we had Zoom and we had live stream, because it's better than nothing, but what was so clear is like, this is not 
a substitute for actually being together with people, physically present with people. One of the tragedies of the pandemic was how it separated people in some of the darkest moments of their life. If you remember early on in hospitals, visitors were not allowed because it was a dangerous disease, we didn't understand it. And so you had people dying alone. And you can hold up a phone of your loved one, but that, that's just not the same. We'd have funerals where, you know, most were allowed were 10, sometimes even less. And you can put up 50 laptops with, you know, all your friends FaceTiming or Zooming, but it's just not the same. When we're in the darkest moments of our life, we need people physically, we need physical presence. We need people to put their arms around us and catch our tears. Or if we're not very touchy-feely, you know, just give us a little shoulder squeeze. We need something. That's what Jesus did. That's what God did in Christ. He came and he was physically present to us in our greatest need. He didn't shout from a distance. He didn't, he didn't beam himself down as an image. But he actually came and he, he was physically present. Jesus Christ came in the flesh. And again, this is what John has been so concerned that we know is that Jesus Christ is the one who came in the flesh. This is he who came. This is the first thing we testify to that in Jesus Christ, God came to us. But then second, John says by he says this second thing about Jesus is that this is he who came by water and blood. I'm gonna be honest, this is one of those passages that you read it and you think, boy, I'd love to hear someone preach on this and explain to me what this means. And the bummer is that when you're the preacher, you gotta figure out what it, what it means. And it's actually, as I've studied it and, and pondered it, it's, it's actually been very, very rich and, and, and helpful for me and, and I hope it is for you as well. But the first thing we have to answer is, okay, what is this water and what is this blood that it... Jesus Christ came by. Now, the, the blood, I think, is pretty obvious. Uh, it's referring to the death of Christ. Oftentimes, in the New Testament, the writers will use the blood of Christ as just kind of shorthand for his death uh, on the cross. It's the water that's a little bit like, okay, what is that referring to? And, and when you read commentaries, there's any number of possibilities that someone has argued for at some time. I think two likely possibilities. One is it may refer to Christ's birth. Um, so when it says that he came by water and blood, it's saying Jesus Christ had a real human birth. This is how John uses it in John 3 when he says, you must be born of water and spirit. You must have a physical birth and a spiritual birth. It says, you know, in, in the birth, there's the amniotic fluid. And I have young men in the audience. I don't want to scar you, but it can be a very messy thing. <laughs> that might be what it's referring to. But I think more likely, and this is actually where more, most commentators come to, is it's referring to the baptism of Jesus. If you remember, Jesus' ministry begins when he's baptized by John the Baptist. And he goes into a time of temptation, and then he goes into his ministry. And so when John writes that this is he who came by water and blood, he's talking about the bookends of Jesus' ministry. And then he emphasizes, again, this is the one who came not just by water only, but by water and the blood. And it seems like he is once again referencing these false teachers who had gotten into the church. We know about 100 years later, there was a common teaching that some said that Jesus was just a human, but at his baptism, the spirit of Christ, God descended on this human, and then before Jesus' death, he departed. And the, the reason they were arguing for that was, that it, was it was offensive to think of God actually coming in, in the flesh. Like, that's not what God does. The way that we might feel an instinctual kind of offense against a God who shows wrath, or a God who shows judgment, that's how they would view like a God who might come, no, that's disgusting, that's repellent. And so Christ the man Jesus, you know, must have just been a man. Anyway, so, so, so John says, no, 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 this is who came by the water and the blood. 
God became man, and he died on a cross. It's the heart of our faith. But what is he getting at? What is his main point, though, when he says, this is he who came by water and blood? What is John's main point? Well, the point is that Jesus, the Son of God, he came with a particular mission. His baptism was, baptism was the beginning of his, of his ministry. Again, he went into his temptation, and then he began to preach, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And what was the culmination of that ministry? What was it all leading towards? It was the blood, him dying on the cross for the sins of humanity. That's what it took the apostles three years to understand, but once they understood it, a little fire in their minds and their hearts that it really did overcome the world so that these parochial fishermen went across the known world testifying to whoever would listen, this is he who came by water and blood. He came for you. This is what is testified. And I want to give one last just side note again on this first point of, of what it is that we're testifying to, the one who has come by water and blood. And I just want to point out that John could have said, this is he who came to give salvation. And it would have said basically the same thing. But instead he uses these very physical descriptions. He uses two images that are very like tangible, water, blood. Why did he do that? I think what he was getting at, again, is that this is the one who didn't come as like a phantom or a vision or some charmed life, but this is the one who came and lived a real physical life. He fully experienced the beauty and the joy of what we experience, but also the tragedy and the heartache. He lived a real human life. And the reason that matters is told to us in Hebrews 4, where it says we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What happens is when we go to, when we go to Christ, he says, yeah, and we come out of the struggles of our hearts, out of the hardships of our life, and he says, he says yes, I, I know, I understand. I've experienced that. I love the way the KJV actually translates this. I'm not a KJV person, but here it says, he is able, he is, uh, because we have one who, who, who came as a human, he's touched by our infirmities. Like, they touch him. Our, our struggles, our temptations, they t- he's like, yes, I know. I've walked that. What this means is if you struggle with uncertainty or anxiety, if you can't control something, it's hard, and there's just low-grade anxiety through your life, and you come to Christ. Well, you know, Jesus is one who lived at a time where there was no social safety nets. If you didn't have money, you, you didn't eat. And he wasn't born into a well-to-do family. He was born to a poor family in the country. This is one who likely knew hunger. We don't know when his dad died, but he may have been especially hard life without a father to provide. He knew what it was like to be kind of one step away from just destitution. He knew anxiety. He knew what that was like. And so he's able to give grace to the anxious. Um, we struggle with loneliness. Has it occurred to you that Jesus spent his entire ministry with men who did not understand him, did not know why he was there, 
You know, why is it so disorienting when you move somewhere new or you start college? Because you go from a place where you're known to a place where no one knows you. I think college is the hardest transition to make because you go from your family who's known you your whole life and then you step into a place where no one knows you. But what happens? Well, you make friends and you become known and so you move out of this disorienting time period. But Jesus spent three years with men who'd never understood him. He understands what it's like to be lonely. And so he can give grace to the lonely. If you struggle with injustice, whether it's injustice that's been done to you or injustice done to friends of yours, I'm, there's a background noise in here somewhere. Can we, is it possible to figure out where that's coming from? Okay. Okay. Moving on. Let's not forget that Christ's trial was a sham. It was a gross, gross instance of misjustice, unjustice. And so he knows what it's like to fall victim to, to, to the powerful. And so he's able to give grace to those who are wrongly afflicted. Again, this is the one who, who, who testified to, this is the one who is testified to us, the one who came by water and blood, who didn't just walk a mile in our shoes, he walked eternity in them. And so we can receive grace for whatever circumstance we're in. That's the wonderful thing that Christ came by water and blood. He came, by, he came in the flesh. That's the first point, what is testified. The second point, they who testify. Uh, let's follow along as I read verses six to nine. Again, picking up second half of verse six. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is a testimony of God that he has born concerning his son. Now, I'm gonna make some grammatical points first. You're welcome. Yay, grammar. So when he says this is the one who came, he's referring to an event that happened in the past. This is something that happened once, and it was done. Jesus Christ came, shed his blood once. He doesn't need to do it again. It was enough for any guilt, for any wrongdoing. This is an event in the past. So he's the one who came, but then it says, but there is a spirit who testifies. Or you could translate that as this is a spirit who is testifying. It's an ongoing activity. And not just the Spirit is testifying, but there's the water and the blood that are testifying with the Spirit. Again, this ongoing activity. And you have to ask, okay, what, is, what does that mean? And what John is giving us here is one of the main roles of the Holy Spirit. One of the main roles of the Holy Spirit is that he testifies to us. He speaks to us. He preaches to us. And what does he preach? He preaches the water and the blood. He takes these religious symbols and he makes them real to us. He speaks them into the deep recesses of our heart where we need to hear it, where we need to receive it. The Spirit testifies to us. He comes to us and he says, broken sinner, made from dust, returning to dust. Here is water in the wasteland. Drink, be full, Here's water that can cleanse any stain. Here's blood that can forgive any debt. The Spirit comes and he, he takes us 
the water and the blood of Christ, and he he presents it to us. Isn't that beautiful? Don't miss this. God gave his spirit not to do wonderful, amazing things, but simply to remind us there is water for you. There is blood for you if you will receive it. The spirit testifies. It's one of the main roles, one of the main things that the Spirit does. There is grace. He comes to us and he tells us there is grace for anything because of the water and the blood of Jesus Christ. Now as we hear that, for some of us there may be a small voice telling us that we hear in our head, that can't be true. It can't be that easy. It can't just be a matter of receiving the cleansing of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ. Like, there has to be something I have to do, some kind of penance, some kind of method I put into place. It can't just be, it can't be so easy. Well, here, here verse nine. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that is born concerning our son, concerning his son. Again, the reason we can trust the Spirit when he comes and he testifies to us and he, and he offers us the water and the blood is because that is the voice of God speaking to us. You know, the Christian gospel is beautiful. You don't have to be a Christian to recognize the beautiful imagery of a God adopting rebels as his own and forgiving them by, by sheer grace. It's a beautiful story. But the gospel is not just some inspirational story that we hear and it kind of warms our hearts and we go on our way. But it's actually the testimony of God himself telling us what really is the case. When the spirit comes to us and whispers to us, there's there's water and there's blood for anything. It's the voice of God speaking to us. That's why we can trust it. We don't have to get a second opinion. I think some of us wish Wouldn't it be great if God spoke a little louder sometimes? There's a few things more disorienting than when you want God to speak and he doesn't seem to be speaking. Or maybe some of us are like, no, I'm glad that God doesn't speak because think about it, he knows everything. He's seen everything that you and I have ever done, thought, wanted. Do you really want to come face to face with that kind of a person? But God has spoken. He spoke by sending his son. And he speaks by a spirit who comes to us and says, see the water, see the blood shed for you. He speaks to those poor and tired sinners who are just done, tired of this. He comes and testifies, there's water and there's blood. He comes to the perfectionist, the high-strung perfectionists who are just ragged, from trying to cross all their T's and his, his water, there's blood for you. He comes with the earnest moralist, neck deep in their self-righteousness and not even knowing it. He says, oh, there's water and there's blood for you. He comes to the terrified hypocrites. So there's water and there's blood for you. You know, perhaps God in his tenderness is speaking to you this morning. Know that's the voice of God by his spirit. Rest in what he says to you. Rest in the water and the blood. Rest in his promises.
This is they who testify. And we should listen all the more because of what God is testifying to in his son. Let's bring us to our third point. He who is life, verses 10 to 12. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have a son does not have life. John has been kind of dancing around what exactly is being testified to. He talks about, you know, this is the testimony of God. He says this is he who came by water and blood and we can kind of fill in the gaps, but he hasn't just come out and said, what is it God is saying to us until here, verse 11 to 12. This is the testimony, this is what he's spoken to us, that God has given us eternal life. And we have to just right off the bat recognize that, unfortunately, the phrase eternal life has just been trivialized and misunderstood, and there's all kinds of unhelpful baggage that come with it. For instance, oftentimes when we think of eternal life, which everyone knows that word because of John 3.16, it's the most popular Bible verse in the Bible. God so loved the world, he gave his only son, who might not perish but have eternal life. But oftentimes we treat it as just the same thing as heaven. Eternal life is just something we experience after we die. So in order to experience eternal life, it's just a hope for the future. It's just, we got to die first. And then when we talk about eternal life as heaven, it's far more influenced by pop culture than by anything the Bible says. Um, I can assure you as your pastor, nowhere in the Bible does it tell us in heaven we'll be sitting on clouds playing harps. We'll be playing the guitar. No, I'm kidding. It doesn't say anything like that. It just doesn't. And all of God's people said, amen. I can't get excited about that. What is eternal life? Well, eternal life is John's favorite term for just describing the entire event of salvation. It's how he describes what Jesus said in the beginning of his ministry. He said, repent, the kingdom of God has come. Salvation is here. It says, Paul describes new creation. Our faith is in Christ. We're new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. It's a a term for all of salvation. And one of the messages of the New Testament is that salvation is something we experience now as well as in the future. When Christ came and said the kingdom of God is here, there was a sense in which the kingdom of God has really arrived. But it's an already not yet. There's elements that we haven't experienced yet. And so when when, when he says that this is God's testimony, that he gave us eternal life, it's not just something that, well, I gotta just sit still, and my hope is in the, it's something we taste and see and experience and live through now. In what sense? Well, it would be helpful to look actually at the beginning of this letter in 1 John chapter 1, verses 2 to 3. This is the prologue of this letter, and listen to what John says. He says, the life was made manifest. It means it was made visible. We've seen it. We've testified to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son saying, look, we've proclaimed this gospel to you so that you may have eternal life. What is eternal life? Eternal life is fellowship with God the Father and with his Son. It's a close and intimate relationship with the God who is love, who is in himself 
the embodiment of love and compassion and care. Why is that such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal to have fellowship with God? Well, I want to, I want to think about it this way. I'm going to ask you a question. Have you ever had the experience where you're out and you're looking at something beautiful? Maybe you're on a mountaintop and you can see for miles and you hear the wind kind of whistling through the trees and you see birds flying below you. Or maybe you're on a beach on a sunset and it's just crimson, golden. Maybe you're looking at the stars and it's just the clearest you've ever seen. You can see the Milky Way and it looks like a dome above you. And in the midst of this beauty, all of a sudden you have this almost sadness, an ache, a longing for something. That doesn't happen all the time. In fact, most times it doesn't. In most of our life we don't experience that, but sometimes there's something about being in, in, in the presence of just majesty and beauty that brings out this, again, it's, it's not just a, 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 like appreciate, but there's something that we, just, we, we long or ache for something. When I, was, when I was eight, we were living in Slovakia, my parents had put us to bed, I was on the top bunk, and it was this beautiful summer evening, it was at dusk, and because I was on the top bunk, I could just kind of lay there and look out my window. And our neighbor had a, had, a, had a garden, probably bigger than Joe's, so it wasn't quite a farm, but it was like a big garden, and, and, and the, and the uh, owner and his teenage son, they're, they're finishing up chores late at night. I'm just watching them work in harmony in this, in this glorious summer evening. And my little eight-year-old self, just like, you know, normal eight-year-old self, just had the sense that this is a, something is sacred about this. And I just longed for something. I didn't know what. I wasn't a Christian yet. I didn't know God. There was an ache for something. C.S. Lewis talks about that desire and he calls it homesickness. He says, there are times in our life when we find ourselves homesick for a home we've never been to. You might think of it as a part of our soul that remembers the garden. And most of the time we're so encumbered with, with the brokenness of this world or the busyness of life or the distractions, or our own sin. And, and, but there are moments in the face of just beauty and that it comes out. We begin to long for a home we've never been to. Eternal life is coming home. You get that? That's, it's coming home not to a place, but to the person that we've been homesick for our whole life, who in moments of great beauty, we begin to sense And this homecoming is found in Jesus. Again, we have to be specific. It doesn't say that God gave eternal life through the prophet Muhammad. It doesn't say that he gave eternal life through the Buddha or through our possessions or through politics. It's through Jesus Christ alone. It's not even through the good things of life that really do bless us. It's no, God gave eternal life and this life is in his son. And the, the false teachers scoffed at the idea that God would become a man that was repellent to them, just like People scoff at the idea that there's eternal life only in Jesus, bigot, close-minded. That's fine. This is the testimony of God. He gave eternal life, and it's in Jesus, the one who came by water and blood, who died for the sins of the world that we might find life, that we might have fellowship with God, that we might come home.
I have two applications for us. Hopefully there's been other applications throughout, but I have two formal applications for you. And the first is this. The first application is to believe the testimony that God has born concerning his son. God sent his son to die for us, to give his blood so that we might have fellowship with him. So the question is, do you, do you believe God? Are you believing his testimony is born to us? If you confess your sins, receive the forgiveness and righteousness that God gives by faith. Now I'll tell you what, faith oftentimes begins as kind of a stumbling, faltering, mustard side, mustard seed of faith. And that's okay. If we wait till we understand everything, we'll be waiting until we die because we'll never understand everything. The question is, do you believe that Jesus is the life of the world, that he died for your sins? If so, then cry out to him. That's the first application. Believe the testimony that God has born concerning his son. The second application is to believe the testimony that God has born concerning his son. See what I did there? It's kind of like two rules in Fight Club. Don't talk about Fight Club. Well, there's a reason I did that. It's because in the gospel, it inverses how we think it ought to be. We think God ought to accept us because of our great love for one another, our obedience. We tend to think, well, God will go out, and he, he went out and he, he searched the earth for those who are particularly moral, particularly upright, for, for the good citizens, and he made those his children. But the gospel inverts that, in that Christ came to seek and to save the lost. He came for the sick. He came for those who are desperately needy. And so we believe the testimony that God has given concerning his son, that he came by water and blood. And love will come. Love for God and love for another, it will come. That's what John's been telling us throughout this whole letter. But it flows from faith in the one who loved us first. It flows from, the, from coming to a place where we believe and trust and the love that God has for us, as he said in chapter four. Love will come. Faith comes first. Obedience will come as well. But obedience will flow from the love that flows from faith in the one who comes to us in the water and the blood to wash and cleanse us. And all this is summed up as eternal life, fellowship with God, coming home. Let's pray. Christ, we thank you that you've come to us and you come with water and you come with blood so that we can find grace no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in. May we receive it in faith. If there are any here who doubt whether you really can have grace for them, May they look to our Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.